think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, today on Kidney Talk, we're going to talk about uh, quality in dialysis care. Now, this may be a topic that some of the people may not understand, and what I hope to accomplish in this interview is to explain how the dialysis providers and the physicians look at quality and what patients can do as well to help improve quality. Because if we don't have good quality, we don't have good quality of lives. (laughs) So it's really important to um, understand this and how they're going to be measuring it. So today we're here with Dr. Vincent Dennis. He's the Medical Director of Innovative Dialysis. Uh, Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Lori. Now, um, I was talking to you a little bit earlier, and you're from Cleveland? Correct. Right outside of Cleveland, a little town called Bentleyville. And how long have you been a nephrologist? According to the American Board of Internal Medicine, since 1972, which is important because it, my career in nephrology transcends, uh, you know, the pre-EPO mm-hmm. and... Uh, and many of the eras. So I remember the days uh, before hepatitis immunization and before uh, AV fistulas, and so uh, it, it, it is important to have that. Acetate instead of bicarb. I remember uh, the uh, acetate dialysis. Uh, yes, I mean, you and I, I'm sure, could trade lots of war stories that, of our experiences. And 72 is when uh, the ESRD Medicare legislation um, was presented before Congress. Correct. One of the most noble acts that the U.S. government ever performed, in my opinion, in recent times. Well, tell us a little bit about um, why quality is really in the forefront of dialysis care right now. I think quality is in the forefront of dialysis right now for pretty much the reason that you mentioned in your introductory comments. Uh, Namely, we know it's important. We all are vested in it. We all want the highest, best quality uh, treatments that we can receive if we're a patient. And as physicians, healthcare providers, we want to provide the best quality service. This leads to the next question, which is, well, what do you mean by quality? And, and the simple answer to that is that we view the term quality to mean the degree of excellence. How good is your program? How good is your care? How good is your practice? The problem comes in when we try to address the question of how do you measure that? And this is exactly why you hear so much discussion now about quality. It's not about quality itself, but how do you measure it? Now, some of the things that are pretty basic for quality are um, anemia, measuring uh, anemia levels, measuring adequacy levels, uh, infection rates, is that correct? And there's one other one I just, oh, bone and mineral metabolism. Correct. Now, what you just mentioned there, Lori, were the items, the areas of quality that the U.S. government, Medicare, is especially interested in. But, but I like to take the point of view that your 
own interest in quality is more important than someone else's interest. Um, we practice this in our life all the time. When when we go shopping, we look for value, we look for quality. Um, the We do so in everything else that we do. So let's, let's take an example. Uh, there are lots of different people involved in end-stage renal disease treatment. Let's focus on dialysis. The patient, obviously, the physicians, obviously, payers, obviously, owners of dialysis units, obviously. And if you ask any one of them what are they interested in in terms of the quality of the program, they may have and probably should have totally different answers. For instance, from my point of view, I'm not a patient, but what I would be interested in would be I want to survive uh, and I want to feel as well as I can with, within my condition. Um, that means staying alive, staying out of the hospital, and making dialysis as comfortable, as convenient, and all the attendant care. Now, that's fine. And we measure that very well. And in fact, we do very well. We measure mortality rates, survival rates. We measure hospitalization rates. And in fact, they have been improving steadily over the past 10 years. Uh, so that's excellent. In terms of what patients want, it seems to me, and what are easily measurable outcomes, survival and hospitalization rates, we measure them, we show that our programs are steadily improving over the past 10 years. Then when you get into another area, you mentioned adequacy of dialysis. How much dialysis should I receive? We don't have good measures of that. We have measures of that. KT over V, urea reduction rates, you've heard these terms. We know scientifically from a clinical scientific point of view, that those are inadequate measures of dialysis care. Why do we use them? We use them because they're easily measured. We accept the fact, I say we, perhaps we, we as physicians <laughs> shouldn't and we as patients shouldn't, but, but for instance, Medicare uh, or some guideline organization, KDOKI you're, you're familiar with, uh, would come out, uh, or a dialysis provider, mm -hmm. uh, one of the dialysis companies, or the medical director, and certainly included in the rules that we as physician nephrologists are asked to follow, will say, here, you need to have a KT over V within this range or not below this number. Fine. Because that number is easily measured, it becomes embedded into our culture when scientifically we know it's not the best and certainly in many instances is an inadequate measure of, of the adequacy of dialysis. Well, in regards to KT over V, uh, KT over V of 1.2 is basically the standard. Um, and in a lot of people's opinions is that absolute minimum measure. It's a very easy measure to hit. And so is it better to have a, a higher number to try to push the limit a little bit more? Because if you have a target of 1.2, it's going to be the bell curve where some people are going to be low and some people will be above. Exactly right. And, and so, yeah, it should be better like 1.6 and maybe everybody will be above 1.2. Uh, but you hit on the other important point. Why do, where did this number of 1.2 uh, come from? It comes from the fact that we, we had enough clinical experience and observations to show that if you weren't getting 
hemodialysis up to that level, then there were increased hospitalizations and lower survival rates. Now, the other part of that question you asked, so, so that was set at the at, at threshold above which you should achieve. And as you know, uh, more than 90, in fact, closer to 95% of uh, patients on hemodialysis are achieving that goal. Right. Uh, so the next question is, well, if I want to be above 1.2, wouldn't 1.4, 1.7, 1.9 be better? And the answer is, when scientific studies were done to compare a lower to a higher level of KT over V, they didn't show a benefit. Part of the problem is that the measurement is inadequate. It's an inadequate measure of the adequacy of dialysis. It's a measure of the inadequacy of dialysis. So a threshold above which we need to, to reach, it doesn't follow as night follows the day that a KT over V of 1.7 is superior to 1.2. Well, one of the things I hear from patients is that they go to dialysis on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and they feel washed out for the rest of the day. You know, then they feel better the next day, then they got to repeat it again. And in my opinion, I mean, if a patient's, you know, feeling that way, there's something going on because it's like that's not improving their quality of life. It's actually creating a dependence. And so many patients want to be more productive. So how do they get out of this rut? I mean, we're trying to push people to home treatments, which they can do more at home, but it's a big issue because I think your image, patient's image of quality changes over time and they somewhat just accept a lower, less of quality of life. When a patient starts dialysis, uh, the, the, the sociologist will tell us there's a 30% reduction in their quality of life. Bing, from Monday, I'm not on dialysis. And if a week from Monday, I'm on dialysis, the overall quality of my life has gone down by 30%. Now, uh, that's just from the tasks associated uh, with dialysis. Uh, in addition, when, when it comes to, okay, I go on dialysis, I want to feel better after dialysis. One of the things we're learning uh, is that the time on dialysis is an independent, favorable factor in people and patients being well. Uh, let me circle back to that KT over V. Having a KT over V of 1.2, 1.4 is good, but it's a lot better if you achieve that with more than three and a half hours of dialysis. As soon as you start having less than three hours of dialysis, then no matter what your KT over V is, you're not going to do well. That is, time on dialysis is, is an independent favorable determinant. And this is why many of the home-based programs, um, where the time on dialysis is more convenient to the patient in a more hospitable environment, um, leads to such an improvement in overall care. But that's not a choice for everybody. And fluid management is one of the topics that people are trying to, you know, look upon is trying to figure out how do we manage fluid because it's hard. I mean, I've tried to stay on a, a, a fluid regimen of, you know, 12, 1400 cc's a day and it's really difficult. Uh, so that's something that they're looking at to improve in quality for the government. 
It, it, and not only that, it's also not measured by any simple number. Right. No, there is no KT over V for volume control. The, uh, there is no urea reduction number. There is no hemoglobin number. There is no simple lab it's test. Not that easy says, to measure. Right. And, <laughs> and look and at your ankles. The circumference exactly. conference well, of your ankles. Uh, yes, <laughs> but then, but then again, the the ankles, the the lower extremity uh, swelling may represent a a compartment of fluid that's not readily accessible uh, in a three-hour dialysis treatment or four-hour dialysis treatment. It, it becomes accessible, again, and this is perhaps part of the explanation for why a longer time on dialysis is better, is because that fluid has an opportunity to get mobilized. We need a patient's cooperation in, in extending the time on dialysis, which needs to be one of our goals. Now, there's a couple of other measures. There's anemia, which is right now, um, from a patient's perspective, I am very worried about being below a 10 hemoglobin. Uh, 10 to 12 is where I usually hang out. But uh, we just testified at a MedCAC hearing that, you know, was talking about having a hemoglobin under 10. And, you know, do you have any thoughts about that? Because, I mean, I'm scared as a patient for being under 10, but as a physician, a nephrologist, and you know, that will change the quality of life of patients. Uh, yes, it will. And, and there have been a number of clinical studies that, that have looked at this as EPO, or I think we're all familiar with that term, uh, erythropoietin uh, came to four, and that studied the, the risks uh, at, of being in a lower hemoglobin rather than a higher hemoglobin. And the early studies that were done where patients had hemoglobins less than 10, it seemed to indicate that medical problems arose as survival was threatened when hemoglobin was less than 9. So there's that gray zone between 9 to 10. And we eliminate that gray zone by saying that our goals, our clinical goals, should be to maintain a hemoglobin of 10 grams per deciliter. And we have set a, an upper limit of that because of some new studies that, that show no advantages and some risks of, of having EPO-pushed hemoglobins greater than 12. So the window that, that you described, a hemoglobin of 10 to 12, is the perfect window. I would say there's no more worry about being in the 9 to 10 range than there is in, in being in the 12 to 14 range. The sweet spot appears to be 10 to 12. Now, one of the things that's been discussed is bone and mineral metabolism. And there seems to be a debate that people can't decide what quality measure um, should be uh, put out there. Is Do you have any comments on that? Yes. Bone and uh, mineral metabolism uh, is uh, one area that is not so well covered by the dialysis treatment, but more by the peripheral drugs that we use, the phosphate binders, the vitamin D supplements, and, and other agents. Um, for a nephrologist of my vintage, that goes back to the early days of uh, aluminum, <laughs> uh, 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 of crushing bone pain, uh, and this was a huge problem. Um, Q 
curiously, I don't, we, we don't see this anymore. The general measures that we have implemented over the past 20 years have pretty well taken care of a good deal of that, not all of it. So the issue becomes uh, wanting to preserve bone strength in an increasingly elderly population going on dialysis. Uh, so there may be other bone conditions going on. And then there was uh, quite a bit of concern that uh, is thankfully simmering now that the bone and mineral metabolism was involved in calcification of our blood vessels leading to obliteration of blood vessels. It appears now that it's the components, the individual chemistries like calcium and most especially phosphorus or phosphate that are the key ingredients that need to be controlled to minimize the prospects for uh, vascular disease and uh, also for bone disease. And we pretty much uh, have some of the tools we need, but diet becomes very critical. And the reason for that is that phosphate appears to be the most important chemical we need to control in that area. We don't have good medicines to control it. We have some medicines to control it, but anybody who is taking phosphate binders, uh, such as Phospholo, Civelomir, Renvella, uh, Phosphorinol, any of those, knows that you take a lot of pills and you don't see any gain from it, and you may have some GI problems. So we don't have good medicines for that. We know we need to control it, when in fact there are excellent studies that show that if we can control the phosphate content of our diet, especially not by eliminating foods, but by eating foods that are high in protein relative to the amount of phosphorus. Dietitians, therefore, become the key ingredients to our care in this area. Well, and they don't list phosphorus levels on food labels, so it's really difficult. And patients, um, you know, now most foods have phosphorus in it, and it's also a preservative. So I know that we've been working towards getting phosphorus labels listed on, you know, food because you have no idea how much phosphorus is in food, and it becomes very difficult to manage your diet. Uh, you're absolutely right, and that uh, that public health uh, movement is uh, is moving forward forward and needs to take place because it may very well be that the phosphate content of our foods uh, is important not only to individuals with chronic kidney disease, but also to the normally healthy population. And the main concern is that although phosphorus is present in virtually all foods, it's the additives, the phosphate additives that are present in soft drinks and many fast foods that sort of unbeknownst to us, it's more hidden, or less. Hidden food, phosphorus. Exactly. The hidden sources of phosphorus, just as we always worried about the hidden sources of, of salt for people with heart failure. Well, one of the other topics is infection. And I know that that's um, one of the things that uh, to measure quality, really uh, paying attention to infection, it's important for patients to, you know, get a fistula first if they can um, and prevent having a catheter if possible possible. But uh, are there any other initiatives for um, infection control other than universal precautions? The uh, infection control uh, within the dialysis units has been remarkably successful over 
the 20 plus years that I've been involved in it. For, for those of us who lived through the hepatitis B era, was, which was devastating not only to patients in hemodialysis units, but also to the personnel in hemodialysis units, before we had immunization against uh, hepatitis B, uh, it was just devastating. Now we have uh, immunization. One of the most important things for, for patients who are on dialysis, as well as personnel within dialysis units, is in fact that they keep up to date on their hepatitis B immunization. That's very critical because it's true that in any epidemic, what happens is we get immunization, we get a vaccination program, it's used, it goes off the radar screen, people get complacent, they say, oh, I don't, you know, I never get the flu and I won't get hepatitis, I won't do this, they don't get immunized, and then it sneaks right back up. So in terms of the, the most devastating uh, infection it, that was rampant in the dialysis units back in the 60s and 70s, that has been uh, very, very well controlled. In terms of the bacterial infections that uh, lead to hospitalizations, lead to need for intravenous antibiotics, lead to morbidity and even the risks of increased mortality, there the most important thing is to get rid of the catheters. They have to go. Now, that's where uh, we probably have not been as firm with our patients as, as we should be. No doubt there are some patients who need, who do not have a vascular access or an opportunity for peritoneal dialysis or an opportunity for transplantation and need to be in a catheter, but that's a very small number if we put our mind to it. Uh, but what happens is that if a patient starts on hemodialysis abruptly during some hospitalization, uh, that's going to be initiated uh, all 95% of the time by placement of a central vein catheter, what we call a catheter. And the, the patients may very well be discharged from the hospital with that catheter directly to a dialysis unit. Then they get used to that. And it's difficult to budge them off that and say, well, we want to take that out and we want you to see a vascular surgeon and we want you to have this surgery done to reconstruct your vessels and then we're going to insert needles through your skin to access that. There is an understandable resistance to that, but that is not adequately linked to the horrible risks, death, uh, devastating infections of heart valves, uh, devastating infections from the catheters due to organisms that slip through the skin uh, from that exit site. So one of the, the single most important things that we are working on now, we, everybody in the dialysis world, is to reduce the use of catheters, uh, and that leads to uh, improved sense of wellness and improve survival, and those are the two easily measured and most important outcomes. Well, the Renal Support Network Advocates had a meeting about a year and a half ago, and we were talking about quality, and two things came up and uh, that would be important for patients, and that is sleep. Is there a way to measure sleep? Because if we can sleep well, that seems to determine that our quality of life is, is doing well. That was one measure. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I, I, I'm just 
reminded of what my mother would always say, a good night's sleep will let you deal with the badness of the day. So uh, I, I agree with you that after a good night's sleep, no matter what comes your way during the day, it's it's a little bit more manageable. Um, sleep disturbances are very, very common in patients on dialysis. And uh, some of this is related to other medical problems that they have. Obesity, especially what we call central obesity, where there's a, a big expanded abdomen, is, is associated with sleep disturbance, what we call obstructive sleep apnea, heavy heavy snoring, those are signs. This is very, very common uh, in the type 2 diabetics, who of course are commonly patients of ours in the dialysis unit. So it may be totally independent of that. And then the other is, again, if there is not adequate dialysis, then there is going to be the metabolic disarrangement that will lead to disordered sleep, similar to loss of appetite. Subtle loss of appetite manifests by loss of weight, one of the early signs of inadequate dialysis. And then there was one other measure um, uh, for people who are under 65 um, getting back to work. And I know that there's probably about 10% of the population right now is working. But do you think that that could ever be a measure that the dialysis industry would um, adapt? It's been a long-standing goal, Um, but one for which we're very frustrated. Uh, When I was early in my dialysis career, we did a study at at my institution, and uh, this would be in the early 80s, now, and at, the, at that time, there was rehabilitation um, to the point of independent employment in, in only 24% of the patients who were on hemodialysis at, at that time. Um, we as physicians are frequently called upon to uh, submit information on medical disability of uh, patients who are on dialysis. So the question comes up, if a patient is on dialysis, are they medically disabled? And my response to that is that that they are suitable for employment, all other things being equal, consistent with being on hemodialysis four hours three times a week. And that does limit uh, some of the uh, employment opportunities, uh, most especially in in the current setting. So uh, should that be a goal? Absolutely. But is that a goal? We're, we're so far away from <laughs> achieving that goal, Lori, that we hesitate to bring it out again. It was one of the early goals, but now it's not. By the way, there's a related issue, and that is that right as of 2009, the most recent data we have, the, the age segment of the population that was most commonly moving on to dialysis or uh, Mm -hmm. perineal dialysis, transplantation, hemodialysis, was in the age range from 40 to 45. A few years back, it was patients over the age of 60. But now it's shifted downward, and the reason for that is patients with type 2 diabetes. So the age range now is in that very employable importantly employable age range of uh, 40 to 54. Well, what would you tell your patients? Like you have these quality measures in front of you. In closing, what could you tell patients that you need to do on a daily basis to help us meet these quality measures that have been put forth uh, by the community? 
Uh, first and foremost, I, I would say if, if that patient has a central vein catheter and there is an, an alternative, that's got to go. So get rid of the catheter. The second thing I would talk to them about is their time on dialysis. Um, patients will always argue with their physician to, look, if my KT over V is 1.4, uh, fine, why don't, you know, can I take 15 minutes off? Well, of course you can, but it, it isn't going to help you. In fact, how about 15 more minutes rather than less? So I would say that. Then the, the third is that the single most important thing that they can do has to do with diet, and the diet should be acceptable to them. Certainly fluid management, but in, many, in, in some patients that's a huge problem. In other patients, it's not that huge. Uh, the other uh, would be diet with regard to high intake of protein, and uh, and restricting the hidden sources of phosphorus. And then last but not least, make sure that you take all the, the medications. I mean, I was just, I take about nine different medications, so I feel like I need a course on how to manage them all. But it is important to stay on top of all the medications because uh, it's, uh, you're it's overwhelming right. sometimes. You're, you're absolutely right, Lori. <laughs> and the pharmacist doesn't help because they all come up at different times. So you're constantly trying to organize them. So I know that that's a big burden for patients, but it's important to take your phosphate binders when you eat, yes. right? I yes. hear that a lot of times. Yes. patients like they didn't know that they were supposed to take the phosphate binders when they eat. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's when you need to bind the phosphate. <laughs> exactly. Well, I really appreciate you um, spending some time and sharing your expertise because it helps people out there who are living with kidney disease understand what the community is doing. And then hopefully um, everybody needs to get together to create the solutions for the future because it's going to be a tough ride in the next 10 years with all the changes um, in healthcare reform and uh, different things that are happening. So a Exciting changes and I think changes that, as you indicate, we can all turn around to improve the outcomes. Yes. Thank well, you. Thanks. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our healthcare team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference.